Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Robbie Jones, Insights Analyst Lead at Catapult. We discuss how to create a unique visitor attraction, what you need to know before you start, and what the leisure and attractions market is looking like post-COVID. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. We're back. I hope you've all had really busy summers full of lovely visitors. I'd really like to know how it's been for you, so feel free to get in touch. You can always email me at kelly at rubbercheese.com. Can you believe this is season four of Skip the Queue podcast? I cannot believe that we've been running for so long now. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sticking around and for supporting us. We have a whole season full of really brilliant guests booked in and I know that you're going to absolutely love them. We'll be covering topics on innovation, pricing, filming and even aromas. Yep, you heard me right. All the smelly stuff. But we're kicking off in style with the team at Catapult. Robbie! Hello, hello. Welcome to Skip the Queue. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of season four. I know, what an honour. What an honour. I can't believe it. I've been chosen first. You are the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you say it's an honour now, but you might not appreciate it after I've got you uh, with these icebreaker questions. <laughs> oh, good. I've actually got some new ones this season. So I've been asking our lovely uh, former guests and our Twitter followers to send me in some new ones because I felt like the old ones were getting a bit tired. So I'm going to mm. whack you with some of the new ones and see how we get okay. on. Here goes. I have to say, this is one of my favourite ones. Okay. It might date us slightly as well. You can only save one of the Muppets. Which one do you choose and why? I think Kermit. Okay. He's just iconic, isn't he? My first memory of Kermit is when they did uh, their version of A Christmas Carol. The thought of uh, of Kermit doing that was amazing. So, uh, so yeah, okay. got to be Kermit. Yeah. Got to be Kermit. It's a classic. He's a classic, isn't he? He's, he's quite legendary. All right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good answer. Uh, next one. If you could enter the Olympics for anything, <laughs> what would you be Olympic level at? And we're not just talking sports here. This could be like baking, moaning. What are you, what are you saying? I, I think I, I see myself as, as a bit of a, a jack of all and master of none. Maybe, maybe I'm like a decathlete. Something like that, where I'm kind of, I'm good at, at a few things, but I'm not amazing at one big thing. <laughs> what we like, if you, when we go back to like sports day at school, what was your, what was the thing that you would do at sports day? It was probably like the long distance running. I, I seem to do a lot. Yeah. A lot of uh, cross country. We, we, we used to call it in our school, yeah. uh, which went from tarmac to a, a muddy path. <laughs> in about five minutes so I don't know how cross-country that was but yeah sort of like long distance running I can't stand it now I can't stand the the, the noise of breathing <laughs> heavy breathing as I struggle up a hill that's just not a sound anybody wants to listen to so, uh... <laughs> oh you really made me laugh I, um so the only thing I can think about when I'm running is breathing and now all I'm gonna hear is myself breathing and think about Robbie and and not wanting to do it <laughs> 
Okay, final one. Yeah. What movie can you rewatch over and over and over again? And how many times have you watched this movie that you're about to tell me? Uh, so I think for an absolute uh, nostalgia, um, it'd have to be uh, Dumb and Dumber. Um, because uh, the amount of bonding that me and my younger brother have done over that film is just immense. I think we reference it every time we speak to one another. It's just become part of our psyche, part of our relationship. So um, we, we've probably watched it dozens of times between us, but um, it, it gets referenced at least three times a week. Oh, so, that's uh, a great, great film. Um, Jim Carrey. What- He's great, isn't he? Are you going to do mm. so? If we do the song, Mark, yeah, Ing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. This is the level. This is the level that this show has got to, <laughs> folks. Um, this is what we got up to on our summer break. <laughs> and I love that film. And my friends were really obsessed with uh, Ace Ventura films as well. Jim Carrey yes. can't, oh, can't cannot be. Yeah, comedy <laughs> icon, amazing. I love him to pieces. Oh, Robbie, I can't believe I just made you do that. So sorry, I've lost that now. Um, <laughs> right, unpopular opinion. What you got for us? Right, um, I don't think eating chocolate and fruit should go together. It's it's not right. I, I I'll draw a line. Fruit and nut in terms of like a chocolate bar, you know, like dried fruits and red, I'm okay with. But when it's like fresh juicy things like grapes and strawberries going with chocolate I just can't stand it at oh, all what not like a little fondue at a wedding no. little chocolate fondue no it, it just no like you wouldn't mix milk with water and drink it and that's kind of what I feel like when I'm eating chocolate and fruit together so uh, so yeah whoever has got the largest uh, fondue rental company please stop because uh, I don't like it well, okay no <laughs> I feel like that's quite controversial. The milk and water thing actually turned my stomach when you said that. So I was like, oh no, you wouldn't, would you? There you go. Again, the next time you eat a fondue, just think of me and start gagging probably, as I would. <laughs> wow, what a note to uh what a note to start the podcast on. We've really taken this to a whole new level today, haven't we? Excellent. Right, Robbie, you are the lead insights analyst at Catapult. Yeah. And I want to come back in a minute to talk about what your job entails. But first, Catapult itself. So a little story for you. So years ago, you know, when you're at school and you have to pick like work experience. My granddad had had a business and his next door neighbor's business made props for films. Right. So I bagged myself work experience at this place. And I got to make like loads. I just got made to make weird stuff that then ended up in like films. And I remember going to the cinema, watching the film going, I made that Hessian box there. I sewed that. That was really good. If I could go back now and go, no, like I want This is where I want to go and do work experience. I would choose Catapult without a doubt because you do incredible things tell the listeners what catapult does it's so cool yeah sure so so we design themed attractions and experiences we do it the world over and it could be as something as small as a little pop-up street food uh, courtyard that we did a couple of years ago right to a large-scale full theme park design um, and everything in between and it is it's great 
it's really, really fun. We get to work with some amazing clients, some amazing brands and IPs um, where we, the, the design team are just in their element. You know, they're, they're able to uh, work with brands like Lego that they've grown up playing with since they was, you know, small boys and girls, you know. So it's fantastic for us all to kind of carry on being in a, a kid, really, in essence, being creative, being surrounded by colour and fun and entertainment. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. <laughs> um, you know, a, a lot of um, extended hours, you know, uh, red eye flights across the world but it's amazing it's amazing to be a part of and design some pretty amazing things that are either coming soon or, or already open so uh so yeah we we, we do a lot and we're, it's we're so exciting sad. I feel like you played it down a little bit there as well like I hope you were like <laughs> yeah we just we design like attractions and experiences I was like yeah you do it's really exciting um, <laughs> what you're what what do you do specifically there lead insights and analyst is your job title yeah. so you're kind of the data that sits behind that right the research that sits behind it yeah absolutely so I think um something that we've um we've been in the industry for over 20 years now um and gradually that we've seen that actually it's really good to make sure you've got some sort of insight believe it or not to make a very good decision uh and it was something that was kind of lacking within the industry there was lots of um you know big thinking feasibility reports people telling you what the what the commercial outcomes would be to, you know, to improve a visitor attraction or even to open a new attraction. But no one was really saying, well, hold on a minute. Who is it that you're trying to get through the doors? And what is it that they actually want? And have they actually got the money to spend that you're charging for? And and that's the kind of the bit of the insights gap that I and, and we at Catapult sort of fill we understand the sheer importance of having that insights. We can't just design something from scratch for start, regardless of whether we've, we're working with an IP or not. You've got to have an idea of who are the people coming through the door. So that sheer responsibility lays flat on my shoulders to make sure that whatever the design team designs next, it is fully in line, not just commercially, but from a guest point of view as well, that, they are going to love it from the moment they walk in. Um, so yeah, pretty big responsibility, but it's fantastic to to sort of set the design team up to let them uh, creative minds go wild. So uh, it is it is fascinating what you do, and I think that it's it's really similar to probably the bit that I do in our business because my role is to understand what the client's challenges is and so you are asking all of the questions around you know well like who's your consumer where like what what do they spend where do they do what you know where do they go what do they read etc etc and then you translate that you know the, the designers they get to do the fun bit but I think <laughs> that the research bit is the fun bit to be honest they would probably argue with me um, so what do you, like how do you start that process what are the kind of things that you're that you're asking well I guess it depends on the client depends on the project but the way we typically start for existing visitor attractions is we kind of do a mystery shop and um, we or, or we call it a guest experience audit but what we we don't just go around and have fun you know that's that's kind of the second part of the day the first part of the day is thinking about um 
if you've got signs um, telling interpretation and you're a museum, are they at the right height for kids to read it? If it is, is it the right level of language required for a five, six, seven year old to be able to read it? Uh, and everything in between, you know, it's, it, is the staff levels good? Um, are there plenty of vegetarian options within the, the, the cafe facilities? You know, all of these things where we want to make sure every touch point that every guest that comes through is satisfied. And our audit kind of goes in, it pulls out the good stuff, but more importantly for the operators, it pulls out the stuff where they could probably do a little bit better. It's the things that are probably mentioned more than often on TripAdvisor. Um, and so it gives us the chance to go, right, yes, we did find these issues. These need um, solving as soon as possible. So let's get to work. Let's get to work in figuring out what we can do. And, you know, sort of 75% of the time, those things that we highlight, they can pretty much be done by the attraction themselves. It's only the other 25% where we go, right, your guests aren't staying for four hours and you want them to stay for four hours, they're only staying for two. What can we do to make the experience last twice as long? What can we do to keep them there and engaged and immersed for double the amount of time that they are before? And that's obviously when uh, we get the design team's creative juices flowing and start to think about, you know, what can we do to improve the attraction? So, um, so yeah, in a roundabout way, the guest experience audit kind of um, helps to unlock the insights, helps to give us the ammunition we need to kind of improve the attraction and also look to work on some bigger projects with the client as well. So, um, so yeah, that's, that, that's like a roundabout way in terms of how we do it with the audit. I love that. So it's not just about, it isn't, from your perspective, it's not just about creating new, it's not just about adding on, it's about looking at it from a holistic perspective, you know, where are you already, how are you performing, okay, well, look, this is doing really well, that's great, these things need to improve, and then, okay, so now let's look at the new stuff, because I guess there is, there's always that excitement about new, 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 isn't there, like, oh, a new, a new attraction, a new, a new, uh, I don't know, show that you're going to put on within it, and that, and that's what gets everyone excited, sometimes they forget to take that step back and go but what needs to improve with what we already have yeah absolutely and you know the greatest assets that visit attractions have probably got are sat there already they just need discovering and what we tend to find is um if it's not something tangible like a ride needs improving or a um you know an experiential walking trail needs improving um it kind of falls down to the narrative or the storytelling of the attraction that seems to be the thing that we're coming across at the moment which is probably leaves a little bit left to be desired um people don't explain their stories enough that you know why are they unique why are they telling us this story when you go into a museum or why has this art centre got this curation of art? People aren't very good at telling stories that guests want to listen to. Um, so, you know, you're right. It's not always about the new. It's about the existing, but extrapolating what's good about that experience in the first place. You wrote a really good article that I read a couple of weeks ago called Creating Unique visitor destinations in a crowded market so I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes but it's on um, Catapult's website as well you said that attractions need to capitalize on what is unique about them Um, and that's not just from the perspective of 
hey, we've got this mascot and this is, you know, how we're going to, you know, this is, <laughs> this is how we're going to put it around the site. It's like, but what is like, is the location unique? You know, is the food offering that you have based on that location? Like, what is it about you that really stands out that guests can't get anywhere else and they can't, they're not going to get the same story anywhere else? I thought that was such a, a great way of, of looking at the uniqueness of each attraction. Yeah, and I think there's always going to be a place for attractions that have got the fastest thing, the tallest thing, the biggest thing. You know, that that does a lot to pull um, a crowd. Um, but when it comes to trying to fight your corner, if you're a sort of a, a medium or smaller size visitor attraction, you've got to pull on your, your unique. You know, there's there's a finite source of money and time. So you're going to have to try and get your visitors and your guests a slightly different way. The The article came from uh, kind of an issue that was within two strands of the industry. The first being museums and art galleries that were struggling from a values perspective to say, we can't take this donation because it doesn't fit in with our values. Or museums having to give away uh, certain artifacts back to countries because of the connotations of it being stolen um, in, in today's uh, what is seen in today's society. So they're under huge pressure to say, well, what is our story? What is our narrative? And for places like that, it is very much rooted in the locality. Um, what is your city about? What is your region about? And curating around that. The second strand is around uh, experiences that have got a blueprint and are looking to create dozens of the same attraction all around the world. Again, there is absolutely a place for that in this world. I could, you know, We've got countless clients who do the same thing. But where there needs to be a differentiation is how the local market impacts what that attraction is. You can't just say, we're going to have an indoor attraction that's going to have a soft play and a cafe and that's kind of it and then we're going to put it throughout you know 40 different countries around the world it's not going to wash you can't just put a badge on the front of that indoor attraction and say welcome to Tokyo welcome to Orlando it's just not going to work it's not going to wash it is not unique enough so for those attractions it's about yes you've got a blueprint but what can you do differently based on the people, the profile, the guests that are going to come through that door to make it slightly tweaked in terms of things that they might not have from a, a local competitor point of view, or just making sure that you uh, replicate their stories within the attraction. Um, I've seen some really good stuff that Crayola have done uh, in the US where they're starting to onboard local artists for their entertainment centres. That's amazing. You know, you could be in the US, go to go to the two different Crayolas and you'd have a different experience. So being able to create that unique experience is kind of twofold, but it's one that everyone's got to look at quite a bit now. So one, one of the things I thought was quite interesting is the scale of the projects that you work on at Catapult. So, for example, you I think you mentioned earlier the, the Derby Marketplace project, which is like a pop up like marketplace. And then you've worked with, you know, organisations like the Sea Life, London Aquarium. Like they're really different experiences. Do you look at the same approach when you're working with that, that kind of scale of, of client? Yeah, absolutely. I think with those two examples, there was a very clear commercial goal for both of them. 
uh, for sea life it was about adding an experience that um, makes the ticket price value for money um, but it's also there to increase um, photographic and merchandise sales as well so there was a very clear understanding of what the commercial goal was for Derby Marketplace, um, that was actually a pop-up courtyard that was set up in 2020, just after the first lockdown of the pandemic in the UK. Derby is our home city, uh, and we was approached by the city council to do something that will support the local businesses, because there was obviously restaurants, cafes going bust, because they simply couldn't do a takeaway service because they didn't have the out or they didn't have the outdoor catering so for that we created a courtyard uh, so as a result they both had commercial goals and we both started them pretty much the same way which is right well who is it that's going to come through the door who is it what what do they want is it a family of four is it a couple uh, how much money have they got what sort of experience are they used to um, how long are they going to stay what information are they going to want all of this sort of information that I guess sometimes we take for granted in the you know in the attractions industry feed it into the design and then ultimately come up with uh, exactly what we did for the marketplace and sea life so uh, so yeah I, I think by and large um, we kind of stick along the same path very much insights driven design we do the insights we design it based on that and then we hope it reaches the commercial goal. So you mentioned Crayola a minute ago. That is a brilliant example of really using the locality to make that attraction individual. What other great examples of like really, truly unique attractions can you think of? Well, I think I mentioned it in the in the article you've already mentioned, but um, uh, Meow Wolf, um, particularly the, the, the first one in Santa Fe, that is an absolute benchmark that I use in terms of how you use local talent, local immersion um, to help make Santa Fe a destination in its own right. It's amazing how much one attraction can can kind of pivot the way that a region is seen, a city is seen, um, and turns it into a place that people are, you know, staying overnight for two or three nights to, to just to go to Meow Wolf. So um definitely definitely that in terms of creating a destination but I do want to pull out another example as well um and it's it's not necessarily unique as such but it's the feeling is unique uh and that is Polton's Park so um for those that have been to Polton's Peppa Pig World is there which is a massive pool they've got some great rides they've got some really good food and beverage outlets a good smattering of live performances but what makes the park stand out is how immaculate it is when it comes to public realm the gardens are fantastic the landscaping's amazing you'd be hard trouble to find a piece of litter on the floor but the staff are so incredibly attentive with attention to detail that actually when I've I've gone a few times now um, it's the one thing that always stands out to me and it's the benchmark for just cleanliness you know <laughs> you could be forgiven for being in you know a in a communist china you know it's it's sort of like very clean and orderly and focused but actually you know when we think about visiting a theme park we want it to be glossy and clean and 
you know, not a bother in the world. And it's little things like that for me that have made Poulton's like an absolute benchmark as well for us. Because oh, wow. I, I always think back to Disney about that and ha- ha- like no litter, everything is like beautiful gardens. And that for me is like the level. I haven't had the pleasure of Poulton's Park yet. I think I've got a couple more years and then it'll it'll be uh yeah yes be on the list yeah absolutely you you'll find out just how much you can spend in that <laughs> store with pepper pig oh god yeah i can imagine um let's talk about summer and let's talk about what the attraction market looks like at the moment so you i i know that you've had an incredibly busy summer I and mean, when we're still as we're recording this we're still like at the tail end of it um so i can imagine that it's uh you're looking forward to a little bit of a rest how is the attractions market looking at the moment to you post covid because i guess we've kind we've moved on so to speak from covid or the majority of people have kind of moved on from it but i think it's really difficult with attractions because we are still seeing a, a, a slight decline in in visitor numbers but there's obviously other factors going on at the moment in terms of, um, you know, the energy crisis and things like that. So what's your view of the kind of leisure and attractions market at the moment? I think post-COVID, if we think about the start of the year, I think it was incredibly buoyant. Um, I think attractions have seen the opportunity to invest now. Um, the staycation market has absolutely boomed during the during the times when um international travel around the world was banned so it means that there's been a strong staycation market which is really really good I think for the UK in particular it's it's making sure uh, and this isn't just the attractions industry I think this goes across the whole staycation market of the UK Um, don't get so greedy you know there's a lot of I understand that demand is high and you want to capitalize on it but if we want to keep the UK um as a staycation destination you can't be charging silly prices compared to what they could probably do as an all-inclusive for 10 days in Mallorca you know as an average in terms of what the family is going to do you've got to offer some sort of value for money and the cost of living is the big thing now I think that's what we're seeing Covid is kind of um is there in the background and it's obviously affected things but the cost of living is the one that's really starting to bite a little bit more now um and i think it's because um although we saw a lot of drop in wealth during um the covid pandemic actually the cost of living now is probably a harder time for a lot of people um because the savings have already been taken up by you know making sure they've got income coming in or topping up furlough or whatever it was so um so yeah it's the cost of living is the big thing Uh, people aren't going to go out and spend i don't know 200 300 quid on a on a day at a theme park I, i can't see it happening you know if they do they'll have to forego something else. Uh, and I think that's um, that's something that's going to be in the mind's eye of visitor attractions. And I think we're, we're starting to see like a homogenised view of what we mean by leisure and attractions. Shopping centres now want to get in on the act and have lots yeah. of entertainment. Um, you've got places like Butlins and Pontins in the UK, so typical caravan 
hotel resorts that have built live entertainment and experiences around them, um, they are in direct competition with theme parks and visitor attractions because they're offering entertainment. So the more um, experiences are spread throughout our sphere of what we can, can and can't do, um, the less money there is to go around. Um, so even more of a need for people to be a little bit more unique <laughs> um, and think about what's, it's not just what's going to get me to this visit to this theme park it's why would they choose the theme park over x y and z and as i always say option z could be sitting at home and watching netflix yeah you've got you've got to do something to get people off the sofa i'd not considered the option z could be butlins or pontins though that has just blown my mind because we've all we, we've the whole way through the pandemic we've been saying you know your competition is netflix it's disney plus but i hadn't even considered that now people are, are looking at how they spend that excess cash and how they spend their holiday time. Butlins is a competitor for Alton Towers. Yeah, yeah. In that in that comparison, absolutely. Um, it's just that they've gone about things in opposite directions. Butlins went from accommodation to to experiences, and Alton Towers vice versa. But yeah. they are very, very much competitors these days, and. Um, if you had £500 as a family to spend for a weekend, where would you go? And, and actually, you look at the offers of both of those examples and um, depending on what sort of family you are and what sort of things you like to do, it might be a hard decision to make. But ultimately, it'll be the one. It won't be the both. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so you said that you have seen attractions investing in new rides and experiences to kind of capitalize on that staycation what what do you think attractions should be doing right now based on what we've just discussed this kind of competitive state that that you're in it sounds really cliche but I think it's just have a a long-term view on things um I I can say this from from uh, doing insights here at Catapult but when we're looking at data and trends and audiences we're not just looking over the last 12 months. We're looking five or 10 years in the past and five and 10 years in the future to get a really good outlook in terms of, well, what do we think people are going to do? Obviously, you can't always guess what's going to happen. I think the last few years have taught us that. But you can have some sort of a a vision uh, in terms of where you want to go. Where where do visitor attractions want to be in 10 years' time? I'd, I'd love to know how many attractions know that answer if they know it then that's fantastic because you know they'll be gradually building towards that but I guess what we've seen from from our side at Catapult is that uh, we've gone to a lot of visitor attractions around the world that are doing a fantastic job at iterating whether they've got a theme park or museum or whatever it is but it's kind of all bundled together in kind of like a big mound of plasticine with lots of different colours attached and different shapes and it does a job but it doesn't feel like the same place and if we're treating that as you know the the elixir of, of the visitor attraction then um, that you need to get to the point of well what is your 10-year goal if you know that you know what you're going towards and uh, I'd certainly focus on that <laughs> if you've got a little bit of spare time <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're not busy at the minute. No, it's just been no. through something like they should be resting now. A summer's <laughs> done. Um, that's really hard, though, isn't it? So, um, 
an, an example of that locally to me. So I live uh, near a vineyard. There's a lovely vineyard about 15 minute walk from my house called Saffron Grange. Just give them a little plug because it is phenomenal. They've been selling their wines since 2019. However, the vineyards were planted like 11 years before that. And so they have had to have the vision of whatever they were planting and however they were designing that plot of land that they have. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal the things they had to think about, what trees they would plant, because that's how high they would grow, that would shield those vineyards from the wind and those yeah. vineyards from the frost. And just the level, the granular level of planning that has had to go into that place to make the wine and the, the grapes now to be at the best they possibly can, has it blows my mind. But it's the same thing with at a visitor attraction, right? You've got to have that vision to go, this is my idea and this is how we're going to develop it over that time but you've got the factor of not really knowing what your customers are going to want at that point with the vineyard at least they know relatively like other than like wind and rain influences and you know you know whether that you can't predict they kind of know how those vines are going to grow and what they're going to get at the end of it with an attraction you've got multiple different audiences with multiple different opinions on what they want and what their needs are Throw in a global pandemic. You just, how do you even do that? Like, I, can't, I can't comprehend how you do that. <laughs> I think, you know, we get caught up sometimes in thinking that a 10 year vision or a goal or whatever you want to call it has to be numerical or, or it has to be very definitive in terms, you know, we want to be the number one, theme park in the world like you know those sorts of things uh, you're almost hamstrung by but what about if you said that you wanted your visitor attraction to be the most um inspiring creative place for kids under 10 you know that that is a vision that is a vision that you can build towards and if things change whether it's your audience or your local competitors or whatever it is you can still build towards that vision because that's what you believe in it's about having a sense of what your values are as a business or or as an attraction standing by them making that vision a reality by saying right we're going to do this because we believe in it Uh, and that again ties really nicely back into what creates a unique attraction (laughs) it's your values and I think it's the same for every business we're seeing it a lot more now in the wider business community where people are making a choice over um, uh, values instead of cost although the cost of living is obviously exacerbating that slightly Um, but people are making choices on green energy instead of fossil fuels for example so um visitor attractions are only going to go the same way so um it's it's a big one yeah you're right 10 years if you don't know your 10 year vision then you don't know how to get there over the next 10 years so get it sorted (laughs) (laughs) just put that to the top of the list attractions um now i guess that's a really good that's a good place to be now, isn't it? You know, you've just come through that really, really hectic summer period. Now, you know, the run up to Christmas, bar a few events and things that will happen, it's it's a time for planning for next year. So now is a really good time to be able to kind of take that step back and go, okay, well, what is our vision? Do we need to revalue, you know, revisit our values and vision? And then that will make the planning for 2023 a hell of a lot clearer. Okay, one last question on this, because what if attractions 
are already doing really well at the moment because we've got attractions, outdoor attractions that have been smashing it, right? So what if your attractions are at capacity, what then do you do? So you're looking at things like planning the expansions, things like that. Like where, what can they do? I think there's one of two routes that are seeming quite popular at the minute. I think one is to, um, if you look at places like Gravity and Put Shack and um, a few others that have escaped my mind, um by almost franchising if you think you've got a concept that is completely unique and can be spread throughout the uk europe worldwide then now's the opportunity to look at it I th- it needs um some careful consideration as we said before you can't just copy and paste but if you think you've got something pretty amazing then go for it well why not open a second or a third or a fourth uh, you've proven it can work so you know try it (laughs) it's it's worth it's worth a go and um i guess the second thing and this is something where i think um the bigger museums during the pandemic have really led um the chase on this so i think it was the um museum it was one of the museums in london i can't remember what but they introduced lates museum lates where they did silent discos around the exhibits right this is a perfect time to try completely different things. If you've got an out of season or you've got low throughput days or weeks or weekends, then what can you do to bring in another audience? You know, let's let's try and fill up your, your throughput and your dwell time of your attraction 100% of the year round. If you can do that, then you're making more from the asset that's already making you money. So, um, try it out find new find new guest profiles find, find new groups of audiences that might want to visit um and consider doing something very special for them and you never know if it works out then you've got an extra revenue stream that you didn't think you had so um they'd be my preference if i was in that fortunate position to go down one of those two routes Great advice. Thank you. Um, we're going to put all of Robbie's contact details, etc., all in the show notes. So if you fancy a chat with him, you want to find out a little bit more about what Catapult do, you want to book yourself one of those. Um, oh, I've God, I've forgotten the words. One of the audit. Uh, audit. Audit. Audit is the word. If you'd like to book yourself <laughs> one of those audits. Um, so you can do that. Um, I would love to know about a book, though, Robbie. So we always offer up a guest's book choice as a prize. And it could be something that you love. It can be something that's helped shape your career in some way. What do you have for us today? Gosh, can I pick two? I mean, it's double my marketing spend, but why not? (laughs) First one. Oh, good. (laughs) Fantastic. So uh, I think um, one that's kind of a a personal one um, is um, by Ernest Hemingway. The Sun Also Rises. Um, It's a lovely in-depth read about the the 20s and 30s where cafe culture was rife and um, artists and poets were making adventurous trips to 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 France and Spain to to soak up the culture and it's a wonderful wonderful story that kind of really makes me want to live 90 years from now and really enjoy it I think that's the first part the second part is that Ernest Hemingway used to be um a uh, a journalist so his uh descriptions of the characters are very matter of fact um and i think that's kind of seeped into my kind of like audience 
profiling that I do as part of my job. I like the matter of fact. I like the facts that make the people real and then start to tell the story of what we think they're going to do in an attraction. So I think um, uh, Ernie Samway certainly had a, um, an influence on me. Uh, and then the second book um, is called Super Forecasting, which is by um, Philip Tatlock and Dan Gardner. Now, this uh, it came to prominence a little bit when Dominic Cummins was uh, advisor to Boris Johnson in his ill-fated uh, stay at Number 10 Downing Street. And it speaks about the art and science of prediction and getting things right. Um, and I read it from end to end. I completely soaked this book up. It's a little bit courty in places. So you've got to kind of got to take a bit of pinch of salt. But um it's good at kind of teaching you to say, right, can you be a super forecaster? And funny enough, I think it was uh, February or March this year, um, they put out a bold statement that Vladimir Putin was not going to enter Ukraine under any circumstances, uh, at least for the next six to nine months. And then I think it was about two weeks later. And, it, and he invaded. So I, I think it, uh, that that example of the book... <laughs> It kind of comes with the moral, I think, which is you can super forecast or try and super forecast as much as you want, but you have got absolutely <laughs> no way of you've got no way of deciding what's going to work. You know, there's a difference between a good and a bad decision and a good and a bad outcome, uh, and I think that's what that's what that books taught me yeah. I mean that example did not sell that book for me at all <laughs> however <laughs> that, that sounds great that sounds like a really good book um, absolutely blow my marketing budget again which everybody always does but so um no I love the example of Ernest Hemingway and I love how it's infiltrated the way that you do your work as well I haven't read either of those books so they're going to go on my list and actually listeners we we do compile a list of all of the books that all of our guests suggest. Um, and you can find that over on the Rubber Cheese website, rubbercheese.com. Go to the insights. It's in there. Um, Robbie, thank you. As ever, if you want to win Robbie's books, if you go over to our Twitter account and you retweet this show announcement with the words, I want Robbie's books, then you will be in with a chance of winning both of them. I've loved our little chat. Thank you. Um, thank you for indulging in my little song at the beginning as well. Oh gosh, I'm just glad that you didn't get me to do the scene where he's peeing into a bottle in <laughs> I don't think that would have worked very well on the podcast, do you? No, no. I'm sure you can add some trickle sounds in. Yeah. If you wanted to. End. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.